Even though I've been here 20 years, I am an Illinois native, and this warms my heart <laughs> and renews my faith in Baltimore, <laughs> because not only is the power of nice being demonstrated today, and that's what our author is going to talk about, and we're so pleased, but also the power of persuasion and perseverance and that darn it we're going to come out and really listen to a person who um, is really uh, someone that we should all uh, just take a little advice from. I must confess that I have my two copies already. One I'm giving to uh, a certain uh, community uh, Wonder person, and I'm going to read the book too, and we're going to come together because of the power of nice. So, Ron, I think this is a testament to you and a testament to um, really uh, what you are trying to do. So, I have the great pleasure, Carl Hayden, of introducing the person who also is an author, and if you haven't had a chance to um, read his, it's really a seminal book on young Thurgood Marshall. There have been books about Thurgood Marshall, but this book really gets into what made him who he, who he was and what the impact was. So it's our pleasure to introduce the person who's going to introduce Mr. Shapiro. Uh, see, uh, embarrassment of riches, uh, Professor Larry Gibson. There's still a few uh, seats uh, yeah, up there. There are seats over here. And seats. so, and don't don't be concerned to come uh, moving around while I'm talking. Seats. Over here, Jeff. Come on, Somer, come on, Mike. Here, seats. Don't stand. I'm going to speak for three hours. So. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah seats here. <laughs> I must. Promise. 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 I must comment on just how odd it feels to be doing this without the uh, presence of Judy Cooper. Uh, but uh, Judy's re recovering from um, a hip surgery. I understand that she's doing uh, 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 well, but I don't think I've ever been to any event like this without, uh, without her presence. Uh, I also, uh, b before uh, presenting Ron, want to comment uh, uh, about our uh, bookseller uh, this evening. I hope many of you have seen this fantastic article in The Messenger about Ivy uh, Bookstore and about Ed and Anne uh, uh, Berlin and the fantastic uh, uh, place that they have uh, 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 they have created. So you have the double opportunity today of, 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 of getting a book from a celebrity sold to you by a uh, celebrity. Now, how does one introduce uh, the person who has been uh, your best friend for 48 years to uh, an audience of about 75% of people who have known Ron, maybe not 45 years, but for many years. Uh, I can tell you how you do it. You do it briefly. <laughs> so let me immediately be quite specific. 
Ron Shapiro negotiates, teaches, helps, and writes. Ron negotiates uh, on behalf of his clients, on behalf of children, on behalf of charitable organizations, and really on behalf of whatever he believes to be right and needs help. Ron has negotiated many types of contracts and agreements, settled uh, numerous uh, disputes, and forged out of controversy productive relationships. His special style of negotiating, seeking to find a common ground, is described in his books, and it works. Ron founded and built three successful firms that are molded in his image and are vehicles uh, for his multiple good works. There's a law firm of Shapiro, Scher, Gano, and Sandler that is repeatedly recognized as one as the best business law firms in the state of Maryland. All of you just must come by soon to see our new digs at 250 Pratt Street, West Pratt Street. The views are absolutely dramatic. There are Shapiro, Robinson, and Associates that represents mainly athletes and is consistently regarded as one of the most highly respected sports agencies in the nation. Through it, Ron has guided the careers and the lives of many athletes, including baseball Hall of Famers, Cal Ripken, Brooks Robinson, Eddie Murray, and Kirby Puggett. Plunkett. Puggett. (laughs) The third... The third company that Ron created and heads is Shapiro Negotiations Institute, his main vehicle for teaching. Through SNI, Ron produces seminars, conferences, lectures about how to succeed in this competitive world while being nice. Over the years, Ron has taught at many colleges and universities for Fortune 500 companies, for local community groups and nonprofit organizations. He has taught, advised, and assisted people and organizations in more than half of the 50 states. Internationally, his seminars have been conducted on every continent except Antarctica. And with the recent trip that Ron and Kathy took to Antarctica, I imagine that the penguins do not have long to wait before their seminars begin. Ron doesn't just talk. He helps. He helps people and organizations with advice, planning, fundraising, personnel training, team building and crisis management, and finding shares. Larry, someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. There are seats up here, folks. Ron has chaired the governing boards of more than 25 charitable and community organizations. He has raised millions of dollars for good causes, health care and medical research, 
civil rights, children's needs, world peace. In philanthropy, his name is a household word throughout Maryland and far beyond. In a recent project, Ron raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to refurbish the kitchens of the Baltimore City firehouses. Ron truly lives by the motto coined by Winston Churchill. We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Finally, Ron writes. Ron was blessed with innate natural insight into human nature. His ability to understand and to explain in ordinary language the complexities of people and human interaction is a true gift. Fortunately for us and fortunately for the world, Ron shares his special wisdom and insight through the books that he offers. Today, we launch Ron's fifth book. His earlier books are the original, The Power of Nice, Bullies, Tyrants, and Impossible People, How to Beat Them Without Joining Them, Dare to Prepare, How to Win Before You Begin, and Perfecting Your Pitch, How to Succeed in Business and in Life by Finding Words that Work. His books have been bestsellers and have appeared in seven languages. So today we now see the rebirth of his original book, The Power of Nice. And so it is my pleasure to present to you a negotiator, a teacher, a philanthropist, a world traveler, an author, and my best friend, Ron Shapiro. If, if any of you have an introduction you want made, I have Larry on speed dial. And I can assure you, he can make anyone look good. Larry, best friend in so many ways. Thank you. I, I want to acknowledge a couple of people before I, I start today. Uh, first of all, uh, the amazing team of people I work with at, at our institute, at SNI, because when you do something like this, you can write about it. That doesn't mean much, but you have to live it. Uh, and they, along with uh, partners in, in my old law firm, Shapiro, Cher, Gano, and Sandler, really helped me set the stage to understand the kinds of challenges that are laid out in, in this book. And without them, and without their willingness to look at this book, it wouldn't be. Um, there's also, people say, what, what's with me? What's with me on a book? There's a with author on this book. And his name is, is Jim Dale. And he was there at the beginning of the first Power of Nice. Uh, he helped give it some personality and a sense of humor. Um, and uh, he was very much a partner in that effort. And uh, today he is uh, the policeman of this book um, in the sense that as we rewrote and did things, he looked and said, makes sense, doesn't make sense. Jim, I'd like you to stand up and have everyone acknowledge you. And, and uh, 
two other people. One is, is Mark Jankowski, who couldn't be here today because he's got parental responsibilities. And Mark uh, really was the co-inventor of the power of NICE because we worked together at the Shapiro Negotiations Institute and shaped the philosophy and what happened with it. So I, I want you to know how important he is to me. And then the ultimate partner and the power of NICE in chief, my wife, Kathy, who sits right over there. So I have to tell you, a number of, you know, it's, it's interesting, Larry. I do know some people here today. And if I don't know them, and I, I now am meeting you today, you become a friend because the turnout on a day like today is extraordinary. We talked early this morning about whether we would go forward with this or not. And we said, ah, we'll let it go forward and we'll have five or six people. And you filled this room anyway. So thank you very much. But uh, in, in the context of this book, those who know me know that I recently, with Kathy, came back from this unbelievable place, Antarctica. So rather than talk about the power of nice today, I'm going to talk about Antarctica. <laughs> it, it really is uh, something that is indescribable in terms of how amazing it is. I mean, you get a sense of pulling into it for the first time and seeing the peninsula and just the, the sheer beauty of it. And then the, the wildlife that's there, the, the whales that surround you. These happen to be killer whales, but you name the whales, they have them. They're real negotiators, I have to tell you. And, and the penguins, wherever they appear with our ship in the background. Amazing. And, and, and one of the things that attracted me about Antarctica was it, and, and this is why it was so special, maybe the last place on Earth. Certainly it's the only continent on Earth where the nations of the world, in the midst of the Cold War, Russia and the United States, signed a treaty, the Antarctica Treaty, which protects this, this continent in ways that are unimaginable. Only so many people on the land at a certain time. Biosecurity checks. Uh, it, it lets it be that other planet that we tra travel to. And our good friends Arthur and Barbara Levine are here to testify that that is the truth. You have to kind of decompress after you leave it because it's such a unique experience. And then I also went to Antarctica to learn something about the habits, the interactions of the animals there. For example, the seals and the penguins negotiate, and you got it. It's impossible to have an intelligent discussion with you penguins. You see everything is just black and white. <laughs> well, is that just penguins? Or I ask you for a second. How many of you have looked across the table at someone and said, damn, they see things just as black and white. They can't compromise. I just wish that I could negotiate more effectively. You ever had that experience? And, and, and let me ask you another question. Is there anyone in this room, anyone, and please be very candid, who doesn't engage in negotiations? Anyone in this room who doesn't engage? Let's see a show of hands. Anyone? Well, I mean, you get it. I mean, usually I get a couple of hands and then I'm able to play off. I mean, think about it. Think about the lives we live, employment contracts, house contracts, rental agreements, research grants, dinner times, uh, paper due dates, curfews, conflicts between spouses, partners, friends. The list goes on and on. Uh, I, I remember recently I had a young lady call, and Michael Moss, my partner, worked with me on this from Milwaukee. She said, I, I read about you in some Marquette publication. I'm a web designer. 
And I don't negotiate, and yet I have a very serious problem. And I said, well, what's your problem? And she said, let me tell you, all the male web designers, we're all independent contractors for this company, they all get paid one-third more than I do. And every time I want to go in and negotiate, I get nervous, I, I feel ill at ease, I go in and I hem and haw, and I never speak up to the owner of the business as I should. I think he likes me, but I, I can't do it. I said, well... I, I take it you're calling for some help, free help, I might add. And I'll, I'll, I guess we'll start with this. I'll send you a book. So we sent her The Power of Nice. And then Michael and I engaged in some coaching with her, coaching of things that we'll talk about today. And, and what was so unbelievable was the email that popped up one morning and she said, success, equal pay, good feeling about myself. And, and you know, that's... Power. That's empowerment. And that's what this book is about. Through the years, when I, since I wrote the first edition, I've had the chance to work with a number of you that are here, and I'm, I'm honored that you're here today, but from all walks of life. And one thing that became clear to me was that the power of NICE had to make clear its applicability in terms of the universality of negotiation. It had to be about empowerment regardless of people's callings. And when I say whether you're a high-powered executive, whether you're a student, a researcher, a librarian, a teacher, a spiritual healer, what do you want to achieve in life? You want to achieve good results and you want to achieve good, strong relationships. And that's at the heart of the philosophy of the power of nice. It affects almost everything we do in life. Simply put, the power of nice is all about life. Negotiation is life. You think about it, you're negotiating every day, every place you go in some way. And, and so this, this became the cornerstone of this effort. Negotiation is life. And I know you all want to see how it works, so why don't we negotiate? Who in this room is sitting there saying, gosh, I would like to negotiate for the division of some money? Who would like... Oh, come on up. There's a man. Grab that microphone. I don't t tell us your name on that microphone and identify yourself. John, let's turn it on. John Blum. John. John. Come on over here, John. What do you do in life? I work in IT. IT. Who would like to negotiate with John? Real money here. Let's see. Who is my volunteer? Let's see who's going to do it. Come on up. You were sitting next to John, right? Or near John. Cash. Okay. <laughs> and tell us who you are. Um, Estelle Godin. On this side, Estelle, because you're not right. going to be with him. You're going to be okay. against him. All right. Okay. What do you do, Estelle? You know what? Let's go over this way. We're getting feedback. Come over here. Estelle, right up. You come over. And John, come on the other side of me. Okay. Estelle, what do you do? I'm a physician at Hopkins. Oh, wow. We'll get a Specialty? Uh, neonatology, pediatrics. Oh, wow. I remember being in that neonatal intensive care unit many years ago. <laughs> Quite a place and what you've done there. Hold on to that, John. Sure. Guess what? Are you all excited? Are you nervous for them? <laughs> Guess what they're going to get to do? I asked Carla Hayden for money so we could do this little negotiation. I said, Carla, normally I like 10000 but I'll take 1000 She gave me 10 $1 bills. <laughs> 10 $1 bills. So we're going to play the dollar bill game. Got it, guys? Oh you excited? Is this amazing? 
Well, let me tell you how amazing it is. You're going to get to negotiate for a division of these $10, $1 bills. Sounds like Claire? it. Clear? Yep. And that sounds Absolutely. good? Absolutely. Okay. And that's what the negotiations will be all about. We're going to see who's the better negotiator. Okay. But being a Hopkins physician, I know what she's thinking. She's thinking, look, this is easy. I'll give him five. I'll take five. We'll sit down. It's over. I want to tell you some rules. I want to no. give you some rules. We're going to have, oh, I like you. I picked the right person. Three rules for the game. Right. Number one, you cannot divide the money evenly. Got it? Okay. But John is a creative guy, and John's over here saying, well, you know what I'll do? I'll take six, give her four, and when Ron's not looking, I'll tell her I'll give her one back, and we'll even it up behind the scenes. No side deals to even it up. It's got to be an uneven division. Can't buy her a cup of coffee? Uneven division. Clear? I see. And you two get 30 seconds to divide the money or I keep it. You got okay. it? Right. Clear? Yes. How much do you want? I want four. Give him four and I'll negotiate two. Well, negotiate. <laughs> negotiate. You're neg you're good. That's not bad, but negotiate two. You're good. Did you read the book? Uh, half of it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. Okay. Look, it's four and four, but you still got to negotiate the whole ten. So, what do you want of the remaining two? What would you like? How to much do? did you want? How about, what do you want to do what with do the you two? Want? How much do you want? Come in, you be more realistic. You know? <laughs> I didn't read the damn book. Go ahead. How much you want? I'll take four. I'll be happy to let her have six. Wow. I'd be happy with that. This is an undoing of the entire experiment, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Wait a second. What do you think never happens, but what do you think usually happens up here when someone hasn't read the book? What do you think? What happens? I want eight, you get two. I want seven, you get, and it goes on and on. And then what I normally do, and I'm still willing to do it, is I give these bats out for them. No, these are, these are actually consolation prizes, and you get your choice. These are Cal Ripken Jr. 21-31 bats. Would you rather have the bats or the money? The bats. <laughs> Sit down, both of you. I've had. Wow. I really messed up there. I didn't ask the key question who's read the book? But that's all right because it's going to show you something else in the context of what we do. That first scenario I described what do people usually want to do in this game? What do they want? They want more than the other side, right? So they want to what? Win. And what do they want the other side to do? Does that happen? By the way, it happens 99% of the time, doctor. Oh, I'm going to get you. But the bottom line is that happens 99% of the time. Win-lose. And when two sides get together. Does that happen in life, by the way? Okay. When two sides want to win and they want the other side to lose, what's the result? Win-lose equals lose-lose. I mean, that's where the power of nice got started. People were beating up on each other, and they were getting left in the dust. Nobody was winning. Things were falling apart. We'll talk about it in more detail in a minute. But then, doctor, you thought of alternatives. You read the book. And John, you did too, for that matter, because you were willing to, to make a concession. And you said, look, the alternative here is I get nothing. I get nothing. If, if I, you know, I don't agree to some number, so I'll agree to four and six. Is that a good... How many people in this room were saying to themselves, I'll take four, you take six. Raise your hands. A lot of us. I mean, that, that's life. Four and six. 
But that may not be negotiating. You think of your alternatives, yes, but you've got to think of something else. And this is the power element of the power of nice. You've got to think win-win. Now, you see the words win-win up there? One is bigger, one is smaller. Got it? That doesn't mean you get the big win and they get the little win all the time. What it means, simply put, is that you've got to maximize. You always have to think. And if in the context of this game, and you were very close, if in the context of this game, you could end up with more, if there was a way to end up with more, to increase the odds of ending up with more, then you're maximizing. Got it? Make sense? That wasn't in the earlier edition of the book. That's now in the book in the clear. Okay? Who can think of ways to maximize? I have no more bats, but, you know, anyway. Who can think of ways to maximize in the context of this little game? Who could increase from the four that John was willing to take and still do a deal and still come away with money? Who can think of it in the context of the game? Outside deals? What? No outside deals. They're prohibited. No outside deals. Well, okay, so, so, so the bats were a, an infringement on the bats? The bats were just something I gave them as a consolation prize. I needed, I needed the money to get home tonight. But the bottom line is, anybody think of a way to do it? Well, you know, yes, go ahead, sir. Rip a dollar in half. Rip a dollar in half. I'm not sure you could do that. I don't know if it's worth anything if two hit, but close. So you're there. No time. 30-second game, it's over. 30-second game, it's over. Okay, I'll take one more and go ahead, Scott. And Better than that, better than that, Doc, you had it. Four and four. Look for points of agreement. Flip a coin for the two. The odds are 50% better that you're going to end up with six than just saying, I give up. That's an alternative. Does that make sense to everyone? In life, we don't think things through. Another alternative. And if you disagree, by the way, you can jump in this my small group. What's that? No, it's not part of the rules. It's a, you're always copping out. You gotta end, you, it's what you end up with. Don't make it easy. Well, you know, I was in a program recently, and someone raised her hand in the back of the room, and she said, I'll tell you what, uh, $4.99 and $5.01. And I did this in, in, with the equipment leasing industry in, in uh, uh, Las Vegas, and they had $10 million, so it was $4.99 and $5.01. But you begin to get the sense of... Now, Suppose John always has to win. And you say, I want 501 and 499, and then the time is 29th second, and you say, okay, 499 and 501. You've ended up with 99 more. Reasonable alternative? But then someone in the room raised his hand, and he said, you know what? You never said they could make change. Never said they could make change. Did I say no? John just said it. You didn't say they couldn't. He's a good listener. Listening, I want to be real clear, power of nice negotiations require that you be a good listener and not just a good talker. Make sense? By the way, the equipment leasing deal, there were 10 million under the lights. The, a guy comes up in a cowboy hat and a big belt and a lady over here. He pulls out his billfold, he pulls out a dollar and he puts it down on the 10 million. And he says, Mr. Chaparro, I'll take five million and one, and she gets five. That's not even. <laughs> he was creative. How often in life do you sit in a meeting and say, is there a way to grow the pie? Is there a way to add a dollar? What can we do to make this deal happen? How often in life do you have something that costs you nothing, that you can give something that may be a make-weight in wanting them 
to do a deal with you. Five oh, uh, uh, add a dollar. Five million and one and a dollar. Simple little game. Does it reflect things that happen in our lives? Well, let's get some learning points. Number one, right off the, the, the bat, you said, look for points of agreement. All in life, we look at the whole mess and we we constantly got the ball of wax rather than separate out things that are easy, the four and four. Now we only have to negotiate or figure out a way to negotiate two. Good start. Look for points of agreement. Number two, this isn't an ego game. Too much ego in this world. We watch it. In the Antarctica Treaty, by the way, I started to do some research. I said to myself, how in the world did Russia and the United States agree in the middle of the Cold War with Cuba about to happen and all the other things? You know how? The sci a friend of mine said the scientist took over. He was right. The science, there was no ego. No ego. I want you to remember this. It's not win-lose equals lose-lose. It's not ego. It's negotiation, not egotiation. Make sense? Number three, be a great listener. Listen for the cues that may help you work out the problem. Listening is so important. They're very, very powerful people in this world. I walk into a room with them, and I watch them. I observe. And they're not real good at asking questions unless they're lawyers interrogating people, and that's not what I'm talking about. And they're even lousier as listeners. They miss cues. And that helps in a negotiation. And finally, think of ways to add a dollar. Be creative. Make sense? Everybody, are we okay? Well, we have all that behind us now, and then... I want to tell you that despite what unfolded here today, and Mike Blackstone's here, and Jeff Cochran's here, and I saw Chip Tang's, we all do this. 99% of the time, guys, do we keep money? Yeah. We never have to give the money, unless somebody reads and she doesn't tell us she's read the book, okay? And, and I know I didn't. I know I didn't ask. I'm trying to get this done quickly. But the bottom line is, the bottom line is 98% of the time, you know, people will fight with each other, they'll play win-lose, we'll keep the money, right? Why does that happen? Why does that happen? What is it about our society that causes that to happen? Anybody, give it a try. Is it cultural conditioning? Now, I want you to think about this. Are the Republicans and the Democrats on the edge of another budget negotiation? Washington Post yesterday. What was it called? The Battle of the budget? The battle of the budget. Brian Williams, you remember him? His last news report. His last news report, I remember it well. He apologized that night, and he talked about the Palestinians and the Israelis. And what was his description? They were fighting it out at the bargaining table. Fighting it out at the bargaining table. That's, that's what, you ever go to the movies and watch movies about negotiating? Did you see Wall Street? Did you see The Negotiator? Did you see Ran Ransom? Close your eyes for a second and tell me what pops into your mind. What words pop into your mind to describe our cultural concept of negotiation? Anybody? Throw them out. What's that? Antagonistic. Aggressive. Argumentative. Battle. Conflict. Ego. Isn't that it all? And those two guys really represent it. You know what the key word is on this slide? This word. Not. That is not and should not be what negotiation is all about. One of the principles at the heart of the power of nice is to get this stuff out of your mind. Now, how did I learn that? Well, one of my career tracks was baseball. I actually was in baseball for a few years. 
And every four years in baseball, you know what we did? We had a labor negotiation. If you have a sweater on now, remove it if you have a shirt under it. But undo your ties. It's warm in here, I know. Take your scars off. Every four years, we had a negotiation. We had a negotiation. And what happened? Lockout, strike, walkout, lockout, strike, walkout. Went on and on and on. And what, what was the result? I mean, it wasn't good, was it? And then in 1994, remember this, Michael? 1994, the players went on strike. Was it, was it 94? Do I get my years yet? The players went out on strike in August. And they said, owners, we'll show you how powerful we are as a union. We're on strike, and it's the end of the season. It's the big earning time. And then do you know what the owners did? They said, huh, you called the strike. You know what we're going to do? We're going to cancel the World Series. They canceled the World Series. No baseball at the end of that season. What happened? Win, lose, equals, lose. Billions of dollars pumped out of the industry. If it hadn't been for our own Cal Ripken Jr. the following year, who knows how long it would have take, taken to restore some of the customer base of baseball. But this isn't about sports today. World War I, always one of my favorite examples. The Allies beat the Germans. They take the German leadership. They marched the German leadership into a railroad car in the woods in Compen, France. What was that peace treaty like? Anybody know? It was, you don't just give us your arms. You just don't agree to a normal, you give us your economy. Ruinous economic reparations pulled down the German economy. What do some people say that contributed to? World War II. What an interesting footnote to history. When Adolf Hitler invaded France, he ordered his troops to take the railroad car, the railroad car that they did that initial negotiation in, out of the museum as it was in. He marched the French leadership into that railroad car, and that's where they dictated the terms of the occupation of France. What do you hear in life? What goes around comes around, right? Now, that's highfalutin stuff. That's baseball, and that's... World War I. Of course, I could go right there. Democrats and Republicans, the politics of polarization, the shutdown of the government, win-lose equals lose-lose, and we're cruising for that bruising again. But you know what I want to do? I want to take it into everyday life. How many of you have ever been in a parking lot, and in that parking lot, someone dinged your car, and you had to negotiate a resolution of that ding? Take a look from Malcolm in the Middle, two angry moms negotiating a ding in the parking lot.
Well, an example. Let me, let me just go back to one thing. And by the way, I am mindful that it's hot in here. And if you want to get up and walk out, please do. It's, it's a, a hot room. Um, that's a win-lose. But the, the bottom line is, I had a law partner once, and, and this is many years ago. I was a young lawyer, and I walked into his office, and he said, I want you to understand you're going to be negotiating leases. And he said, we control all the key properties in the Washington-Baltimore corridor. So when those tenants come in, you squeeze them for all the base rent you can get. You get all the escalators and make... As he would talk, I would imagine blood dripping from his mouth. I mean, it's just I didn't understand it. And I, I said to him, sir, I, I just don't understand this. And I pointed out, you've been to shopping centers where there's tape on the doors or chain on the... You know, and they, they get... The tenants can't make it. And it's a, it's a win-lose equals lose-lose. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, you're going to have to learn to relax. Now, only Larry and Kathy know whether I can really relax. But the bottom line is, I said, well, I think, I, I think I'm relatively relaxed. And he said, no, no. You've just got to remember this, young man. And I said, what's that? Just remember when you're feeling like that, think, we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. We'll burn that bridge when we get to it. At that moment, I had my power of nice epiphany. I didn't think the words power of nice. The words win-win uh, were not in the business glossary at the time. But I said to myself, there's got to be a better way to do this. I mean, burn relationships, not build relationships. Are relationships important? Why are they important? When you do deals with people, why are they important? Things can break down later. You have to work out problems. You have to go back and do another deal. Life isn't one transaction. Uh, you may need to appeal to them to help you on, right? So what is the best way to build relationships? What's the best way to build relationships? Do good deals. Well, be nice, but we've got to define nice now, okay? Do a good deal. You know, do a good deal for you and do a good deal for the... How, how many people would pay more for... Uh, a, a dentist, an accountant, a doc. If you knew there was a lawyer, if you knew the result was always going to be better, you were going to get and they were. Wouldn't you go back? Sure. Yes. So it's a matter of doing win-win deals. That's, that's, that's really where we got. And through the years at the Institute, we, we kind of shaped the image of a win-win deal. And that simply put is, you know, you, you satisfy your interests very well. No, you don't always walk in and say, I'll take four, I'll take four. Easy deal, you know. You have to get what you need. You have to get what you want. But you think of them and you satisfy their interest in an acceptable fashion. And finally, the result, more often than not, not 100% of the time, but more often than not, is you build long-term relationships. And that is at the heart, that is at the heart of doing win-win. Let me give you an, an example. Remember Edward Bennett Williams? He used to own the Orioles a long time ago, 1979. He bought them. I represented another Edward. His name was Eddie Murray. And Eddie Murray was earning $100,000 a year, which sounds like a lot of money, but crazy world of baseball even then was not a lot of money. And Nolan Ryan had just signed for a million dollars a year. Eddie was the most feared switch hitter in the game. He was worth a million. And I went in at a million three, always aim a little high, Edward Bennett Williams and Larry Lucchino came in. That was Edward, Ed's partner uh, at uh, 400000 And we kept negotiating, and it ended up where he was at six, and I was at a million. And we deadlocked. You know what a deadlock? That's a deadlock, right? 
Do you ever, are you ever in a deadlock with someone over a price on a house or a job or whatever it may be? We deadlocked. And we stopped talking. And one day, I'm walking into the stadium, two weeks later, and believe it or not, Edward Bennett Williams, this powerful lawyer, is sort of hiding behind the post. And he comes out and he says, Ronnie, come here. Only my mother calls me Ronnie. Okay? And I say, okay, Ed, I'll come. And we go up to his box and we do what we do and we ate crab cakes for a while. And then he pulls out a spreadsheet and he says, I want to ask you a question. Does Eddie Murray need a million dollars a year to live on? He, you know, he gets 112 and he's now going to get 600. Or, and I said, Ed, let me ask you a question. Is Eddie Murray worth a million dollars a year? And he said, every penny of it, but I can't pay it. And here's my spreadsheet. Let me show you the economics. I bought this team. I'm not going to go in the red. Someday, three years from now, we'll expand into Pennsylvania, Washington. Isn't that an irony, okay? We'll do all these things. We'll be able to afford six Eddie Murrays, but not now. I won't do it. I've hit my limit. Is there an opportunity in that transaction, based on the information you have, to do a win-win deal? What is it? Agree, it's only a one-year deal. I'm going to do it quickly. Agree to a deal which pays Eddie Murray a million dollars. Eddie's gotten his institutional number, but only pays him currently 600. You defer 400 for how long? He said three years, right? That's a deal which broke the ice, got Eddie signed, and simply put, at the heart of that deal is this underwriting principle that I want you to indelibly inscribe in your minds. And that is when you're doing a deal, it's in order to get what you want, help them get what they want. Make sense? You know, in the new book, I felt at the end I had to include an epilogue, a chapter on one of my heroes, Nelson Mandela. <laughs> Think about it. Was it 27 years? 27 years on Robben Island? Yes. He then comes back, takes four years to negotiate a, a constitution. It's clear he's the power because the ANC controls by virtue of majority rule, majority black rule. And Nelson Mandela implements in, as a result of the constitution, in the constitution in 1994, minority representation in government. He found a way to give this guy, de Klerk, and his national party a position in the cabinet based on the minority representation principle, 5% or more of the vote, and you got a minority representation in the cabinet, and didn't completely humiliate them in the political process. And then they had another big one to deal with, you know, apartheid, and the horrors visited on human beings by other human beings. And there were people in the ANC who said, we're going to have Nuremberg trials here. Every one of them is a damn war criminal, and we're going to try them all as war criminals. If they were involved, they're guilty. And others said, on the other side, no, you're going to give us a general amnesty. Everybody walks away. So, I mean, you know, that would be four and six. That would be zero and ten. And Mandela said, I endorse the concept that the archbishop and others are working on and that's the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. If you had a political reason, you have to admit, you have to tell the truth. People have to have the opportunity to tell their story. But that doesn't mean you're, you're going to jail. If you did it without that, you will. There was accountability, a limited kind of accountability. 
Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. And so I, I looked for quotes and I found one, you know. What did Mandela say when he taught us something there? He said, you mustn't compromise your principles, no general amnesty, but you mustn't humiliate the opposition. No one is more dangerous than one is who is humiliated. South Africa has its problems, all kinds of problems, but they got through a political thicket at that moment because Mandela understood in order to get what you want, help them get what they want. One of you walked up to me outside today and you said, Ron, I got a win-win story for you because I did read the book. And my win-win story is simply this. We, we were bidding on a project. It was a million-dollar project. The customer said, uh, we can't do it for a million. We don't have that in the budget. I'll talk about budgets later. And uh, he said, uh, uh, so we, we, we said we couldn't do it. And we didn't know what to do. And then we looked at the various items in the budget. We could not lower our price per product. Got it? Because if we did, it affected us with every other customer. But we found non-essential pieces of the budget or of, of the deal. And we were able to reduce those non-essential pieces until the dollar, gross dollar amount came to the budget. But the per product price stayed the same in order to get what you want, help them get what they want. Does that make sense, everybody? Now, I know what you're sitting there saying. You heard that I got a valuable supply. I got the 11, the 11 Patriots deflated footballs. They're a collector item. I mean, they're worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, right, Kevin? Yep. But Kevin here, he's with the Ravens, and he wants some evidence because they think maybe they did it to them. And Kevin walks up to me and he says, Ron, I'll tell you what, I'll give you... $100 for those footballs. I have nothing in the budget for fo deflated footballs. And I look at him and say, Kevin, what are you, well, these are worth tens of thousands of dollars. And Kevin says, Ron, I sat in that hot po room, I looked, and I saw you'll give me whatever I want. Isn't that what he said? Isn't that what he said? But I want to be real clear about something before you leave today, and that is win-win is not wimp-wimp. It's not the four and six we talked about. That's lose-win. Clear? That's lose-win. You start to play that with people, you're unhappy. That's bad for the relationship. You start to play with that with people and you end up saying, you know, uh, it just goes on and on and on. I don't like lose-win, right? Clear, I don't like win-lose. What do I like? Win-win. So the question is, how do we achieve, how do we achieve win-win? And this is going to be the home stretch of this little talk, so I'm going to let you relax a little bit. How do you achieve win-win? How do you get where we want to get in this? Go ahead. I think you have to understand what's important to other people. You have to understand what's important to other people. And now I have to say to you, you also have to understand how to get there. Okay? And so the book is not called Be Nice. It's called The Power of Nice. And this is the power piece. This is the piece that empowers you to accomplish what you want to accomplish so that you don't have to be aggressive. You can be nice and have a relationship. And simply put, it takes dedication, commitment, discipline, and a systematic approach. So I'm going to briefly introduce this to you and then end and go to a, uh, a Q&A. It's the three Ps. Hey, Mike and Jeff and Chip. We don't teach the 20 steps to be a better negotiator, do we? A simple, systematic approach is what we're, we're all about. Prepare, probe, and propose. 
And what I'm really saying to you all is, is if you can learn to be systematic, you don't have to be aggressive, you don't have to be reactive, you don't have to be emotional. I know so many people who do great things in their jobs, and then when they turn to negotiate, prepare, have due diligence checklist, have lawyers litigation checklist, uh, teachers have a checklist. For, but when it comes to negotiating, there's nothing. They just react and they prepare and whatever. So this system is prepare, probe, and propose. And I want to be real clear. When I negotiate, before I ever ask anyone for anything, I spend a lot of time with prepare and probe. I may look at your jacket, Aiden, and say, I'll give you five bucks for your jacket. Begun a negotiation. And Aiden will say, five bucks? It's worth 105 bucks. And I say, take it back. Or I say, uh, 10 bucks. And he goes, 99. Isn't that how you see a negotiation? Me, if I were going through my preparation, I would look at the brand. I'd look it up online. I'd get pricing. I'd talk to Mike about pricing. I'd ask Kim for a, uh, I know she has a resume on Aiden. What am I doing? I'm preparing. I'm preparing. I'm gathering information about the subject and the person. Make sense? And then I'd go to Aiden and I'd say, hey, Aiden, how are you? See, so you got a jacket. Where did you get that jacket? If he tells me his mom and dad gave it to them as a going away gift before he came to do an internship at the Institute, I'd know I'd have a tough time because, you know, that's emotional. But if I heard that we gave it to him at the Institute because we give them to everybody, I'd know, wow, this is going to be easy. You know? No emotion attached to that. But the bottom line is I'm probing. I'm asking questions and listening. And it goes much deeper than that. I'm just introducing it to you. But most of my negotiation occurs in the prepare and probe mode. Then I get to proposing, which we all think is negotiation, and certain principles apply. Here's the key. Don't ever forget these words. Negotiation is a process, not an event. Now, it may be a small one, and you can take 15 minutes. It may be a big one. And you can prepare and probe for 15 hours or 15 days. It's all relative. But let me talk to you about the system now that underlies it. How many of you, when you have to deal with someone else, pull out something and methodically go through steps to figure out how you're going to deal with that person? How many people do that? Not a lot of us, OK? OK, one or two. So I want to introduce you quickly to a thing called the preparation checklist. How many of you have ever sat on an airplane and watched pilots in the front of the airplane? Are they reading an instruction book before they take off? I always elbow the pilot sitting next to me. I say, hey, you guys know how to fly these things? And they say, yeah, we know how to fly them, but we want to fly them exactly right every single time. Right? You know how to do things in life, but do you do them methodically enough? Do you miss things? Sully Sullenberger, flight 1459. What happens? The birds fly into the engines. The engines clog. The engines shut down. Sully Sullenberg lands the plane, and 143 or 53 people walk away safely. What did he say to Congress? They said, oh, your experience got you through it. He said it helped, but he said the checklist. I go through the checklist with my crew every single time. And so we created, we created a checklist for negotiation so people wouldn't crash and burn in negotiations. Simple thing called a preparation checklist. I'm, it's in the book. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I'll just introduce you to a couple of items. The young lady in Milwaukee, precedence. She found out what all the men were earning. She set goals for herself. She found out whether the owner of the business had ever met with anyone or made concessions before. 
She looked into other women. She looked to how he received things that he didn't want to receive. Precedence. Learn from the past. Use information to influence. Interest. Had a, uh, uh, a gentleman who was a, uh, a concertmaster for a symphony orchestra. He comes storming into my office one day. I've had it. I'm leaving. If I don't get $40 more a week, I'm not staying. $2,000 a year. Do you know what he was earning? $250,000. Does that make sense? So that's when you prepare and probe and then prepare again. Okay? Probe. Why? Why? $40 more a week, and I'm going very quickly. Ultimately, he says, because if I get paid $40 more a week, I'll get double scale. Why is double scale important? Keep asking questions. Don't put them on the spot, because if I get double scale, I'll be the only one beside the conductor who's treated like I'm treated. Problem, collective bargaining agreement of the orchestra said if he gets double scale, everybody gets double scale. Doesn't work. But does that, what's, what's his real interest, ladies and gentlemen, anybody? What's his real interest? Status, respect. I'll just tell you how we solved it. We got him a, a plate from Home Depot. We said, if we put a plate on your brass plate, just a brass plate, just like the conductor, we gave him upgrades on the international trips. They were free. He got status. He felt good about it. In order to get what you want, help them get what they want. But that's one of the items on alternatives. Always think about how far you're willing to go and what your goals are. Think about their options. By the way, you know what our young lady in Milwaukee determined with their options? She absolutely put out the best web design. It was better than anyone else's. If she pulled out, she might have an alternative of walking away, and he would have no alternative. Helped in the context. Strategy. I could go on and on in the context of what this represents, but this is a checklist. Now, I've got to tell you an interesting story. I went up to do the Massachusetts Association of Nonprofits. And they're sitting there, and I'm trying to teach them how to raise money. Is raising money a negotiation? Sure. Okay. We have a modified prep checklist for raising funds. And we go through it. And uh, I know that three quarters of them, don't you, Edget? We go through this. Uh, they're not going to use it the next day. They're not, they're not that interested. So the next day, I'm in a little inn in Jamaica Plain near our grandchildren. And I'm, my, my iPhone lights up. I'm getting texts all over the place. And they're coming from all the people in the program the prior day. And they say, look at the Boston Globe today. This was last June. This was the headline. Pilots may have skipped checklists. There was a big crash. A friend of mine died, Lewis Katz, unfortunately, the former president of the New Jersey Nets and the New Jersey Devils. He had just bought the Philadelphia Inquirer. On that plane were friends from a little town in Longport where I went as a kid, Longport, New Jersey. Um, it's tragedy. They skipped the checklist. They forgot to kind of lift the, what, the elevator, whatever it is that goes up and keeps you down, and the plane went out of control. A checklist problem. So does that convince you that, you know, maybe this checklist stuff makes sense, even if you know how to do it? And if it doesn't, then I ask you what you control in life. Do you control the other side? when you're dealing with people. They can hang up the phone, walk out of the room, say goodbye. Do you control outside events? We learned in 2007, interest rates can go south. We'll learn international. Think we don't control, right? What do you control, ladies and gentlemen? How you respond. How, what you do. Preparation. I'm sorry, there's Jeff. Let's get him off there. Preparation <laughs> is the only thing you control. Jeff, you don't look happy. I want you to think about this when you're considering the checklist, but I want to move on and try to wrap this up in five minutes. Let's
talk about probe. And I want to be real clear. It's preparation, and then you probe. And then you could prepare. It's not linear. You don't go preparation, probe, and propose. Got it? You'll learn about that as well. I want to show you. Jeff is a seasoned negotiator. And, and he had to demonstrate how to negotiate with your dentist. Do you ever negotiate with your dentist? I want you to take a look at this. You got it going, buddy? Hello, yes, uh, I hope so. I want a tooth extraction. One tooth. But I need to ask you for a quote first. I need to know your lowest price. One tooth to be taken out, lowest price. Okay, well, uh, assume it's an easy one. Assume the cheapest one. Lowest price is the main thing here. 1600 Okay. Uh, does that include a nurse assisting you? How about if we leave out the nurse? <laughs> <laughs> on to the end of someone else's appointment. How much would that be then? $1,200. That's still a lot more than I thought it would be. Why so much? No, an hour of your time. Well, okay. I understand that because you gently remove the tooth. But it takes a long time. But price is the more important thing here. So don't worry about gently. <laughs> How much for a quick 10-minute get-out extraction? 900. Mm. Still too high. Um, does that include pre-injections? Those little jabs you give to just numb up the gum before the main injection? Okay, well, what if you leave those out? <laughs> of course, I understand. It would be much more painful. But low price is the more important thing here. What is your lowest price without the pre-injections? 700 Well, that's, uh, that's obviously better. But I may have mentioned, low price is the most important factor. So, is there a way that you can get a bit more off the price? Half dosage of the main injection? <laughs> what will that bring you down to? <laughs> Total agony, but 500. <laughs> I really want the lowest price deal here. What if you do it with no injections at all? Yes, 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 I know. It'll be absolutely agonizingly excruciating. But I really mean it when I say lowest cost is the priority here. Okay, uh, I'll hold. I please have done it with no injections. <laughs> 200. Okay. I understand it'll be excruciating, but that's a deal, right? Will you book my wife in then? <laughs>
Uh, Jeff Cochran, would you please stand up, please? <laughs> well, that's an introduction to probing, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time probing. Maybe the most important thing those of us who are get-it-done types can learn. We always want to get it done. Let's get to the bottom line. I had to create, a, years ago in my mind, a stop sign. I would stop, ask questions, and listen. And so what we teach in probing in the power of nice that applies to virtually everything in life is how to ask questions. And this key principle here, this is the tool, W-H-A-T. I'm only going to introduce you to it. But it runs counter to what most of us are all about. We're about solving problems. We're about smart is talking and dumb is being silent. This is just smart is dumb and dumb is smart, really, when you think about it. And WHAT is learning how to ask open-ended, sequential questions to people. We were on the phone yesterday, Paul, with someone, and it was all about what's important. Why do you feel this way? What it's asking someone questions to get to the bottom of it. And then learning how to hypothesize, which I'll give you an example of quickly, answering questions with a question and thinking of uh, uh, the old uh, Peter Falk uh, what was the show? He would always say, Mr. Jones, if you could just tell me a little bit more about what happened, you know. But that's what it's all about. But what I just want to, I want to demonstrate one of the principles at work, hypothesize. How many times, and I, I tweeted about, I actually tweeted today, but I'm not a, not a tweeter, but how many times has someone said to you, you've gone with a project, you have an idea, and they look at you and say, well, we just don't have it in the budget, Right? And then what do you want to do? You want to say, well, look, you've got to get it in the budget. This is going to save humanity. This is going to feed the penguins. This is going to do all kinds of one. Instead of doing that, because they've apparently made up their minds, you say, let me ask you a question. Hypothetically speaking, if you had it in the budget, would you support my project? Hypothetically speaking, if you had it in the budget, would you buy this package? Make sense? They could say no, and then what do you do? Well, can you explain to me why? Why not? Again, continuing to ask questions rather than being argumentative. Or they could say yes, and that leads to another. Have you ever had a situation like this where you didn't have it in the budget, you were able to find them? Well, not really. When do you put the budget together? When does the project have to be? Questions lead to solutions. You know, we go out and we deal coach all over we do a lot of teams and organizations, and they think we're smart. We're not smart. We just ask them questions, and we get answers as a result of knowing how to probe, which takes patience. But that's the power of probing in the context of, of what we do. And finally, listening is a very key part of it, and I'm going to show you some. Why is listening important? By the way, I should have taken more of the slave philosopher Epictetus, or Ep Epictetus in college, because what did he say? God gave us two ears and one mouth. We should listen twice as much as we talk. How do most of us operate? Four mouths, one ear. True? It's true. I mean, I, we do listening tests in our seminars. There's a listening test in the book. You can take it. I want to warn you. You may discover some things about yourself. Why is listening important? Anybody? Why is it important? You get the understanding. I just talked about Why else is listening important? Why else? Information. Information, same thing. It lets them speak. It validates people. How do you feel when you're talking to someone and you know they're not listening to you? How do you feel about them? 
Good, bad? Bad. Bad, right? Okay. Now, how do you know they're not listening to you? What are some of the common things that happen? They're distracted. Their eyes are wandering. They answer a question irrelevant. What planet are you on response? You've told them all about it, and they ask a question as if you'd never said anything. Bad body language. Yeah, right? They interrupt you. Here's the list, and again, we're only running through it today. We outlined it in the context of the book. Why do you think I have people put that list together? Why? So they know other people aren't listening to them? What's that, Pat? Is there anyone in this room not guilty of these crimes? By the way, I want to be real clear. I write books not because I'm that smart. It's because I've made all the mistakes. I learn from my mistakes. I, commit the, I, I still commit these crimes today. You know, try to commit fewer of them. But these are traps that we set for ourselves. Not only do we not get valuable information and does it impede doing the deal, what happens is we lose a party. We lose a relationship. Let me demonstrate for you. How many people in this room text and drive? Who's going to be honest with me? How many have texted and drive in the last... Uh, okay. I'll bet if I really pushed it and said, how many people have texted and driven in the last month? How many? Come on, the numbers are going up now, okay? How many people sit in a meeting and do what we call the iPhone prayer? Okay. By the way, when I chair a meeting, if you do that, I'm not feeling good, okay? How many people are sitting at dinner and pull out their iPhone and look? I do it. I do it. But you've got to resist it. You've got to resist it. It sends a message to other people. It sends a message to other people. And there are some people who do it egregiously. They, they are absolutely addicted. I don't know if you've seen the studies in the New York Times three weeks ago. It's an addiction now that's higher than drug addiction. It, by the way, causes more fatal accidents than alcohol. Is this astounding? So, I, I, you know, eliminate distractions. What do you do? You give, your, you give your iPhone to someone. You shut it off. You don't just put it on vibrate, because that's a distraction when you feel the buzz. You've got to think what your strategy is. And if you're negotiating with someone on the phone, don't have your computer on in front of you. First of all, half the time they hear the little noises. And if you have it on silent, you always make the mistake that you start doing your emails. So you've invalidated them, and you've lost the opportunity to get value, valid information. If you leave here today and you just improve on this, you will be better negotiators. But I'm going to close now with propose. And I'm not even going to tell the story because it's longer than it should be, although we're with, still within the hour. We started 15 minutes late. Propose. What is propose all about? It's the third P. It's things that you've heard about. You know, try not to make the first offer. Cal Ripken Jr. became the Iron Man of baseball in 1994. I was about to go off with him to negotiate with a publisher. I did my research, my prepare. I learned that the highest athlete advance paid at that time was 400000 I said, Cal, we got to ask for six or 700000 He said, oh, my, we may lose them. I said, well, first we'll practice the first principle, try not to make the first offer. I went to Wendy Wolf, who I think is now the publisher of Viking Penguin, or associate publisher. She was the executive editor. I sat across from her. By the way, she brought the entire team, everyone on her staff in. Why? They wanted to see Cal. Nothing to do with <laughs> publishing. And we sat across the table, and I said, Wendy, 
what do you offer us for this book? And Wendy said, Ron, come on, you sent me a copy of your book months ago. I know I'm not supposed to do it first. And then I said, well, Wendy, how many books have you done? And she said, 1,600. How many have I done? One. I said, Wendy. And Wendy, I had 400. We might have asked six or 700. And she looked across the table and said, $700,000. Now, that doesn't happen frequently, but why not leave it open? But it's not a rule. You, sometimes you have to make the first <coughs> offer. But when they say something that excites you, don't jump across the table and go, Ooh, Kim, you got a deal. Because then they'll go, oh, I didn't mean that. I meant that minus this, right? Better to think of the late Hank Peters, the man who inspired me in negotiations, taught me so much, the former general manager of the Orioles who just passed last week. He would always say, Ron, I'll get back to you. Tom, I'll think about it. And if they need to know that same day, Tom will get back to you in an hour. But get time to back off and analyze what you get in the context of what you do. And I got back to her, and I said, Wendy, you know what? I think it'll take a million dollars. And what I did was, when making offers set goals high, with reason, I had pink slips, I had more appointments with publishers, even though 400 was the base, cow became unique. So I said a million dollars. I had to learn to perfect my pitch, and I can talk about that another time and script to say it, but the bottom line is, I made that presentation. I remembered an old English proverb that I want you all to remember, much is lost for the one of asking. She came back and we ultimately did the deal at 800. But do you see how the process works? It doesn't work that way every time, but these are guidelines for propose. Make sense? Okay, so let me wrap it up and then take a few questions and you're out of here. Look, this is a discussion today, an introduction for you to the world of the power of nice. And I, I want you to understand that here's a toolbox. That a, this is just a, a capsule of the toolbox that appears in the back of the book. But when you negotiate, ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to feel inferior. You don't have to feel reactive. You don't have to feel defensive. And you don't have to act with anger. If you remember, negotiation is a process and not an event. If you remember, in order to get what I want, I'm going to help them get what they want. Because what is the power of nice in the final analysis? It's about empowerment. Empowerment. Using the power and the systematic approach of the three Ps to negotiate good results, deals, and at the same time to build meaningful uh, relationships. This revision is the product of years of experience and hopefully will have more impact than ever in not only helping its readers to be better negotiators, but every bit as importantly, to lead more effective and more fulfilling lives. And that's what drives me to put things like this down on paper and down on your e-readers. Thank you very much. So why don't we take, and feel free to get up and take five minutes of questions. Anybody have anything at all on their mind that they would like to ask about in the context of the power of nice? Anybody? Yes, sir. Credit, what, what do you mean credit? Giving credit? Yeah, 
to people? Yeah, oh. getting credit from people. The same way, discredit in general. Do you mean money credit or people credit? Money credit. Oh, money? Well, I mean, it depends on the deal. Every deal is different. In my preparation checklist, I will have a situation summary. If credit plays a role in it, then credit will be in the deal. But let me talk about giving credit of another kind for a moment. Because mm -hmm. one thing, and I hope I, I, I sort of did it in a disjointed way in the beginning, the power of nice, the credit goes to other people. I mean, I, I, I have had the privilege to work with extraordinary people these, this past 50 years. And to learn from them and have them input to me. I, without the, the, the devil's advocates in my life and the gadflies and the people who would ask me, have I thought about or have I done things? I couldn't do what I do, okay? Whether it be at home, in the offices, or out in the world. That, that's another kind of credit that's really important. But credit will factor in. The money credit you're talking about in the situation summary, and it will play into the preparation checklist. If you read the checklist, you'll get a sense of that. Okay, thank okay. You. Anybody? Yes? If you walk into a situation where every apparent bit of leverage seems to be favoring the, the other party, is there still a way to turn that to your advantage, or...? Yes. Uh, you know, I am the son of an immigrant. You know, he got off a ship back at the turn of the last century. He got no education. Uh, he got the sixth grade, but, but he taught me that you never look at a glass half full. You know, he, he got it, by the way, the way he got his education, he sold encyclopedias and dictionaries and he read them, okay? But the bottom line is it was always about looking at the half full glass. And so you can describe to me a hopeless situation and I will still look at it as a half full glass. Is there a way that I and my team of people I work with can figure out a way around and out of the, the, what appears to be an impossible situation? Now, the answer is there are times when it doesn't. There are times when no deal is the best deal. I write about, you're reading the book about Pizza Hut and the Hunt Wesson Company and the great tomato sauce crisis, believe it or not. But the bottom, and there no deal was the best deal. But that's part of your analysis. And the negotiation process requires that you go through that analysis before you throw up the white flag and say helpless. Is that responsive? But when you're methodical, you do that. When you're not, your emotions take over and you're in the hopeless stage. Other questions? Anybody? Yes? Uh, the presumption is that uh, both parties, when they're negotiating, have uh, leverage of some sort. Um, I'm thinking political environment where one side may have complete upper hand and negotiation really isn't possible, or you don't see see the other party as based on path performance as negotiable. You know, it's interesting. In a political environment, sometimes you see it as hopeless because based on past performance, it's hopeless. And then I analyze past performance to see if there is something in past performance that gives me an opening. And, and believe it or not, and I, I think we have found this in deals that we've done in the sports world. It's been absolutely hopeless. They've never done it. And then we found something that opened the door to doing it. And that's why preparation drives me so hard now. Can I and you go into the Congress of the United States and figure out a way to get the Congress and the executive to work together? I'd like to try. 
I'd like to try. I wrote an article. I want to tell you just brief. I wrote an article that remains unpublished called Hope Out of Hopelessness. We're, we're working on it. And it's about the Middle East. Looks pretty hopeless. I mean, how do you get the, the two worlds to come together? And particularly after the Gaza War and, and the terrorist raids, all the things that occur. So I went back to Camp David, which I write about in, in The Power of Nice. And I look at Camp David, and what do I find at Camp David? I find that there have just been terrorist attacks and Zodiac boats that have come ashore near Tel Aviv and people killed and kids killed. And then I learn the Israelis bomb Lebanon and thousands of people. It's like the same stuff. And probably the least persuasive president we have ever had politically, he wasn't real persuasive in terms of his constituency, Jimmy Carter steps up and negotiates and negotiates a peace treaty with the Egyptians. Okay? It's a great book. It's called 13 Days. It's by Wright. It, it's just an astounding testimonial to the power of nice. Because it shows Jimmy Carter preparing like hell and probing like hell and giving up. By the way, on the 11th day, his message to his Secretary of State was, it's hopeless! But he stayed with it. And he was methodical. And ultimately did the impossible. So that to me is hope out of hopelessness. That is an example of where you could have given up, but he never did. Go. Right. But um, Israel had leverage because of the, uh, the Seven-Day War. Israel, Israel had leverage, but Israel, you know, that meant they didn't want to do a peace treaty. They didn't want to. Israel, Menachem Begin, the right-wing prime minister of Israel, the last thing on earth he wanted was a peace with Egypt. And the last last thing he wanted was a peace with the Palestinians. So there was no peace with the Palestinians. But there was peace with, an, with Egypt. Oh, only reason I'm I look, I try to I want to figure out the Antarctica Treaty. I want to figure out how Obama got the Pope in with, with uh, uh, you know, the embargo in Cuba. I mean, we're far from having it done now. But those are hopeless situations and yet they turn. Make sense? Anybody else? Yes. Carla, one more in Oh, I'll just take one more and get everybody out of here. Yes, Sam. Sam's my landlord. He, 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 he and I negotiated. He is, I'm, I'm still there. His son is here too. He's my landlord. But that's the power of nice right there. Go ahead, Sam. And Barbara helps. <laughs> Go. You have a store. Right. Uh, but you have an item of lesser quality, which is akin to their price. Right. Uh, how do you approach something like that? Uh, again, the way I deal with price fixation that people have, price and product fixation, I can never convince them by saying, I got something, it's comparable, take it, it's cheaper, it'll, everybody will be. I ask them lots of questions, Sam. I, I say to myself, this isn't going to be a sale today, this may be a sale tomorrow. And I'll ask them questions about what are they looking for in the product? What kind of performance? Why this product? I, I may find out they, they believe in the name of the company. You know? What do you know about the track record of this product? What do you know about the track record of this product? What's important to you? What else? Hypothetically, and that's how I try to solve it. I mean, there's no solution with good product, high-end product and middle-end product by saying you've got to take this instead of this. That's what I hope you're learning in terms of the preparation piece and the probing piece 
Is that responsive to it? You don't, in essence, you don't suggest a lower problem. I do not suggest it. I ask questions, and suggesting it may be part of my strategy, ultimately, down the line. That may be, I'll get back to you. And that's when I suggest the lower product, based on the information I have. Last question. Do you have any advice for people trying to negotiate with their boss for a better salary or better benefits? And you gave the incident with Eddie Murray. Eddie Murray, right? Yeah. Eddie Murray. <laughs> <laughs> Edward Bennett Williams. He laid down his cards, whether or not they were honest. But usually an employee doesn't know uh, again, the young lady in, in Milwaukee is a perfect example. I mean, she did a prep checklist. She gave me information. Get a friend to be your coach. Don't try to solve your problem by yourself. You need someone looking over your shoulder. The most, one of the most powerful tools we have that we do in this world is with organizations where we're the coach. And we look like geniuses. We're not geniuses. We just don't have emotions involved. We know the steps that have to be taken from a probing so you have to ask questions. You have to listen. There are lots of examples in, in the book, but the answer is you've got to go through a systematic set of steps that hopefully lead you to a result rather than just walk into the, to the boss and say, boss, I think I deserve a raise. And that's why I wrote another book called Perfecting Your Pitch, which was about scripting for the meeting with the boss. It's all preparation. Ladies and gentlemen, sorry to keep you all so long.